0: And continue to see the grace of God in action. We'll look at two places. First of all, in uh, Romans chapter 14 and then Revelation chapter 5. Before we read, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for your word. I pray, Lord, that you'd open it up to us now to the glory and honor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And let your spirit rest on me to bring your word to your people today through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Paul writes in Romans 14, beginning with verse 1, "...as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions." One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, We are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the living and of the dead. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And then Revelation chapter 5, starting with verse 6 down to verse 10. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and they shall reign on the earth. May God bless to us this reading from the Holy Word. A number of years ago, this big burly guy went to uh, his local uh, pastor's house because he had heard that the, uh, the pastor's wife was a woman of great charity. Uh, she liked to support worthy causes, and, and so he thought he would go and, and plead on behalf of somebody else. And so, uh, so he went to the, the home uh, of the minister, and his wife entertained him, and, and they were there having a cup of tea. And uh, she said, okay, well, what can I do for you? And, and with tears in his eyes, she said, he said, ma'am, I, I'm here on behalf of a family uh, in my neighborhood. Uh, this, this family they 've gone through such a hard time the The husband died two years ago, rather tragically and uh, and, and left no real means of support for his family and, and now and, and now the the widow she she 's been desperately ill for. Uh, some time now and, and she's not able to work and, and provide for her family. And, and she has nine children and, and these, these poor little children, they're, they're, they're so close to starvation. And, and, and on top of all of this, they're about to lose their home and, and be put out on the streets because they don't have the 400 pounds they need for rent. And the, the pastor's wife responded. She said, oh, that, that, that sounds terrible. It's, it's tragic." Uh, it's so amazing that you would come and and, and plead on, on their behalf. Uh, can, may I ask you, what, what is your relationship uh, to these people? He said, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am, I'm just their landlord. <laughs> now, a lot of times, I hear Christians approach God in kind of the same way. Now, we come to God, we cry out to God, we're, we're hungering and thirsting for things for, from God, uh, and, and what we're, we're saying is, God, you know, uh, I meet my needs, do these things. And even when we're praying for other people, sometimes we're praying for other people on our own behalf. You know, oh God, make my, my wife a more pleasant person to live with. Uh, oh God, make my boss less of a jerk. You know, these kinds of things. And so often what has happened in our mindset, especially those of us that, that live in the West or from the West is that our mindset has been shifted so that we begin to see the Christian faith as something that's about me. It's about me getting my needs met. It's, it's my need for salvation. We, we began, uh, it wasn't always that the, the proclamation of the gospel was about your need for salvation. Uh, many times it was about your response to what Christ has done uh, and, and salvation was a consequence of that. But sometime in the 50s and 60s, the gospel presentation, particularly in the West, really shifted to say, you're going you're gonna to burn in hell, things are going to be terrible, so come and get your need for salvation met in Jesus Christ. And what we began to do is we began to reorient the gospel, we began to reorient the message, we began to reorient the kingdom even, so it became more and more about meeting my needs, or, or fulfilling my wishes, or, or having things done by my preferences. And that even came into the lives of many churches. I know many, many churches that have had church splits over things like the color of the carpeting in the sanctuary, whether or not flags should be placed in the sanctuary. Uh, do you sing hymns, or songs, or psalms? You know, there are several different... Uh, Presbyterian denominations up on the Isle of Lewis, many of which have come because of the version of the Psalms that they argued about the, which, which version they should sing. And so we've oriented ourselves to a kind of a consumeristic mentality and mindset, and God is, becomes about meeting our needs, and, and we begin to orient things toward ourselves and our own preferences. And we do this rather instinctively, and we do this oftentimes without really reflecting in, on it and really challenging ourselves because we all tend to, to feel that our perception is right. I mean, that's a, a normal human thing. We feel that our perception, our perspective is right. Well, we'd have a hard time uh, living if we always felt like our perception was wrong. And, and so we tend to come together and we think, okay, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. Well, everybody can't be Right? And so it leads to all kinds of tension and stress. It can lead to the breakdown of our lives. It can lead to the breakdown of our churches and certainly undermines what God has called us to be and do as the body of Christ. And so we need to remind ourselves of who we are and remind ourselves of how we can interact with one another so that we can achieve everything that God has for us because ultimately it's not about us it's all about Jesus. And we see that central message in that passage from Revelation chapter five, one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. They're there, John is seeing the heavenly throne room there unfold, and there's a scroll. And this scroll is symbolic of the unfolding of history. And so they're saying, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to superintend the unfolding of history? Not only the unfolding of history in its ultimate sense, as we saw there in the throne room, but also unfold the, 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 the history in our personal sense, in our corporate sense, in the here and now. Who is worthy? Who has our destiny in mind? Who has control of our lives? Is it us? Is it what we do together? Is it a political party? Uh, Is it getting the right prime minister in government? Is it getting Trump or Clinton to be the president of the United States? Who is going to unfold the history? Perhaps it's Vladimir Putin that's going to help us to unfold history. Perhaps it's, it's the Israeli prime minister. Who will do this? And the answer is there's only one person who is worthy to take the scroll and open it, whether it's the scroll of ultimate history, the unfolding of our entire destiny, or it's the, the scroll of our personal history or our corporate history together. And that one who is worthy is the lamb who was slain. He is the one who is the culmination of history. He is the one who superintends the fulfillment of history. He is the one who oversees our personal and corporate destinies even in the here and now. He is the only one who is worthy. And why is he worthy? Because by his blood... He has redeemed people from every nation and tribe and language group and socioeconomic background and political persuasion and and hemispheric persuasion, whether you're Western Hemisphere, uh, Eastern Hemisphere, Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere. It's Jesus who has redeemed us by His blood for a purpose so that we will be a kingdom and priests of God. The purpose of our redemption is so that we will be the kingdom of God here on the earth in the here and now advancing his loving rulership through what we do and what we say and so that we will be a people of worship so that everything we do in our whole lives lead to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. As it says in the Westminster Shorter Confession, the first question, what is humanity's chief end? Humanity's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that enjoyment is part of His glory. And Jesus is the one who has done that and the purpose of doing that in this life, the purpose of redeeming all these people so we could be a kingdom and a priest to our God, is so that one day we will know how to reign on the earth, because one day we will be reigning on the earth. We will reign on the earth. And this is our destiny corporately. This is your destiny individually. God has redeemed you by the blood of Jesus Christ so that you will be part of his people, so you will be a kingdom, a collective kingdom, so that you will be part of the priesthood, the divine priesthood for God. You have been redeemed for this purpose, and this is our existence. It's why we have church. It's why we dedicate children. It's why we do everything that we do that we would be a kingdom and priest to our God because we've been redeemed by the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And whenever we lose sight of that, we lose sight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We lose sight of the scriptures. And you can see there's much of that's called Christianity in the world today that doesn't resemble the Bible in any way, shape, or form. Because it's not about this. But everything is about this. This is who we are. This is our calling. This is our destiny. And as Jesus takes the scroll of your life, as Jesus takes the scroll of your family, as Jesus takes the scroll of this church and opens it up, he will unfold it so that we will fulfill this destiny to be a kingdom from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue, be a kingdom and priests unto our God. A key thing for us is then how we cooperate with this. And Paul tells us some things. Now, when we look, I'm going to point at three things that Paul says in this passage from Romans 14. Now, up front, I will admit, I am not following Paul's logic in this passage. This is not an exposition of, of what everything that Paul is going to say, but it's focusing on three key points that Paul makes that are applicable even beyond his argument, even beyond the kinds of things that he says here. And it's referring us, talking to us, showing us how we together become or live out, not even become, we already are, how we together live out that reality that we have been redeemed from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue by the blood of Jesus Christ to be a kingdom and priests unto our God so that one day we will reign on the earth. The first point that Paul makes here comes in verses 3 and 4. For, if God, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. And we might summarize this to say, if we serve the Lord, as we serve the Lord, the Lord gives us stability. The Lord enables us to stand. You know, it's so easy for us to focus on what other people are doing. And that's what Paul was talking about here. You know, there were some people that were fasting, you know, they might be fasting three, four days a week. And uh, there were other people who were saying, well, I don't think I'm supposed to fast. And there was conflict, you know, people saying, well, you're not very spiritual if you don't fast. And, And others were saying, well, you're not very spiritual if you think you have to fast in order to be spiritual. And they were having these kinds of arguments back and forth. And you had some people who were saying, well, you know, I think we need to observe the Sabbath and anybody that goes out shopping on Sunday should be struck down by God. And then there was others that were saying, hey, man, Sunday's my only day to catch up. And, you know, I, I still, I worship the Lord. I honor Him. Uh, and, uh, and I, I don't want to be bound by Old Testament legalism. And, and so they were they were having these kinds of debates and these discussions. And everybody was looking down on other people. And there's all kinds of stuff that was going on there. Uh, and uh, And Paul says, listen don't judge God's servants. It's not your responsibility. It's God's responsibility. And quite frankly, it is God who makes His servants stand. It is God who brings stability to His servants. So much of our lives as Christians is lived out with us trying to bring security to ourselves. You know, see it all the time where we think, you know, I, the only way I can have stability in my life, the only way I can have, have, have a certain strong foundation is if I put it in myself. You know, so for some people it's hard work. If I just work hard enough and I do enough stuff, then I will be stable in my life. You now, for other people, it's making a lot of money and saving every penny that they can possibly save. Uh, for some people, it's making sure that things around them don't change, and I don't want the church to change, I don't want the, uh, uh, my family to change, I don't want anything in life to change. Now, there's an old story about a light bulb in a church that had burned out, and someone said, hey, we need to change that light bulb, and another person said, hey, what are you talking about changing that light bulb? My grandma gave that light bulb. And we try so much to bring stability. I've seen pastors do this. I've seen ministers do that. We get somebody uh, like Angela who who has a call to go out, and instead of sending that person out, they try to keep that person in. Oh, you're not quite ready. Well, Angela, didn't I tell you about the Methodists? Pretty dodgy. I'll tell you. And and a lot of times the attitude is not for the person's stability, it is not for that person's security, it's because I don't want to lose a member. I don't want to lose a tithe. Uh, I don't want to lose the support of this person. You know, Angela's the only person in the church that likes me. So if, if she goes, then everybody else is going to be against me. You know, and, and what are we doing? We're working for our own stability. We're working for our own standing. And if you have to promote your own standing, you're going to walk into sin every single time. If you are looking to promote your own stability, you will walk into sin every single time. We must understand as we are a kingdom and priests unto our God, that it is the Lord who gives us stability. And as long as we orient our lives toward him, as long as we see our lives as serving our Father God as his sons, not as his, not, not as his miserable servants, but as his joyful sons, as we orient ourselves in this way, God will give us stability, not only individually, but also corporately. And we have to have that conviction because, frankly, we'll go through times of great turbulence where we feel like everything is unstable around us. We'll go through times of crisis. We'll go through times of pain. We'll go through times of difficulty where we're tempted to take control of the rudder of the ship instead of allowing the captain of the ship, Jesus Christ, to take control. We will go through times where we're tempted to seize the scroll from Jesus rather than allowing Jesus to open the scroll himself. And whenever that happens, we're not fulfilling our destiny as a kingdom and priests unto our God. Then Paul goes on and says another thing. A few verses down, verse, uh, starting verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. You can summarize this by saying, we are the Lord's. This is why Christ died and rose again. We were created for Christ. Christ was not created for us. We belong to Jesus. Everything we are, everything we have. You know, so easy for us in English, and it's not necessarily bad. You know, I'm not against this, where people say, my church, my wife, my kids, my job, my money, my house, my car, my this, that, or the other thing. Now, there's a certain degree where that's okay. I mean, I'm not against people talking about City Temple being my church. Uh, I, I, I've heard some people just kind of go over the top on this you know say so that's always sin. no that's not always sin but what happens is because of the nature of language to shape the way we think if we're constantly doing that and saying that and declaring that we start to believe that it actually belongs to me that my life is mine that my clothes are mine that my money is mine that my wife is mine that my kids are mine and so on and so forth and what you find very quickly is that that is a lie you know, just go around, you know, just start saying to God, God, my money is mine. And God will show you how quickly that money can evaporate. You know, just go around and, you know, just say, if you, if you happen to be married, you know, say, say to your spouse, woman, if, if, of course, if you're a man married to a woman, uh, just say to your spouse, woman, you're mine. And then if you recover from that punch in the face, you know, you, uh, you might start to reconsider that. You know, or if you have kids, you know, just start saying, well, this is my child. And God will show you, if he doesn't show you when they're two, he'll show you when they're teens, that these children do not belong to you. The message here from Paul... Is that whether we live or whether we die, every part of our life, every part of our existence, as the people of God, belongs to the Lord. We are the Lord's. We are not our own. It's not about us. It's not about our choices. It's not about our desires. It's not about our wishes. It's not about our wants. It's about the Lord's. We belong to Jesus. Remember a number of years ago, someone said to me, said, Rod, you're wasting your life. And I said, well, if I'm wasting my life, but I'm doing what God has told me to do, then it's God's life to waste, it's not mine, and I don't care. It is. We belong to the Lord. And if we forget this, we will always fall away we will always fall into sin. We will undermine our destiny. We will undermine the reality of being a kingdom and priest to the Lord. Now, there's a danger here, though. We have to be careful. Uh, And the danger is sour-faced Christianity. I don't like sour-faced Christians. You know, those are the Christians, they're all about what they're against. You know, well, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls that do. You know, I'm against it. Uh, what about singing hymns? I'm again that. Uh, what about dancing? I'm again it. Uh, what about reading any other version of the Bible except the King James? I'm again it. Uh, you know, and they're, they're always about what they're against. And they're always preaching this, this message about, you know, the world is in sin and it's going to hell. It's It's true. I mean... You know, there are people out there, we've talked about this, seven and a half million people within 15 miles radius of us who are destined for hell without Jesus Christ. But you know what? They won't listen to us tell them that. The only person that can convince them that they're going to hell without Jesus is Jesus himself. It's not our job to convince them. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convince them. It's just our job to give the message that Jesus loves you. He's there for you. He died on the cross and he rose again for you. We need to be people who are filled with life, not sour-faced Christians. And even though our lives belong to God, you know what? He wants us to enjoy our lives. Now, I, I know, you know, people say, oh, party. You're having a party in the church, after the church. You're having a party to, you know, what, what we need to do. We, the money you spent on that party, you should have given it to a homeless shelter. We've got money to give to the homeless shelters. We do that. But God wants us to enjoy life, to live life to the full. Paul tells Timothy, hey, God's given us everything for our enjoyment. And it's to be received with thanksgiving. We have a a message. We have a mission. We have to advance the kingdom. We have to be a kingdom of priests unto our God. But also God has given us life to enjoy to the fullest. And he wants us to do that. And those two things are not incompatible. Our lives belong to God. Jesus enjoyed his life. He calls us to enjoy ours. But always remembering we are the Lord's. It's not about us. And God can use us anytime. That time when you think you're going to southern Spain to sit on a beach and you're not going to have anything to do with anyone or anything, that's the moment when God often will bring you face to face with somebody who needs healing prayer. And you need to respond. Because no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, we are the Lord's. But in saying that, We need to remember the third thing that Paul says here, down in verses 10 to 12. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's interesting. The words that Paul uses here, it's not like a ledger. You know where you have inflows and outflows. You know, there's some religions that have that kind of idea, you know, that if, you got the, if the, the positive good stuff you've done on the positive side of the ledger is greater than the negative stuff, you're getting in. But Jesus' ledger, the, the ledger we actually have, is that you know, your debt is so great that you can't possibly do enough good stuff to get in, so Jesus is going to die and pay your debt for you. That's the Christian message. So what is this giving an account to God? It's not giving the ledger of your life before the Lord. The word that he uses here uh, is the word from which we get logic. And you might say it this way, that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God and give God the logic of our lives. Why did you make this decision? Why did you choose to do this? Why, why, Why did you choose to invest your money this way? Why did you choose to show your love this way? Why did you not show your love in this situation? Why did you uh, make this choice? Why did you spend your holidays this way? Why did you invest your life in this direction? This is the kind of thing that we will stand before the Lord and give an account of. What is going on? The logic of why we did what we did. And this is a challenging idea. It's much more challenging than good and bad. Because if good and bad, you know what we all do? We tend to add more things in the good column than we do in the bad column. We all do this. We all do this. Uh, unless you're one of those miserable, sour-faced Christians, in which case you always put more stuff in the bad column than you do the good. And you make stuff up to go in the bad column because you're a sour-faced Christian who doesn't enjoy life, so you want to put more stuff in the bad column than you do the good. Uh, so, so those, those aside we all tend to put more good stuff in than we do bad stuff. That's a human tendency. So the challenge for us then is to start to examine our lives much more clearly and much more fully. Now we all think that we make nice, reasoned, logical decisions, but what scientists are discovering more and more and more is that we all have so many predictable biases that influence our decision-making that we're continually deceiving ourselves and leading ourselves astray. So we need to start asking ourselves a little bit more clearly, why? Uh, I know one guy who suggests that if you're going to make big decisions, always ask yourself why five times. You know, so you, uh, if you say, well, I'm going to go out to, to lunch at, uh, for Japanese today, you'd say, well, why? Uh, because I like Japanese. Well, why? Uh, well, it's the nice flavors that blend together. Well, Why? and ask yourself that five times and you can start to get at the heart of your motives. But that's our challenge is that we need to examine ourselves because we will give an account of ourselves to the Lord. And the second aspect of this then is that we have to take responsibility for ourselves. Because on the day we stand before God, even though we are a collective kingdom and priest to our God, even though collectively we will stand and the Lord is able to make each of us stand even though collectively as well as individually we are the Lord's. There's one thing that you will not do collectively and that's give an account of your life to God. That is up to you. That is you. You can't say, oh well the devil made me do it or my flesh made me do it uh, or uh, uh, name your, your favorite or least favorite person they made me do it. You give an account for your life to God. You give the logic of your life. And that means if you're going to do that, take responsibility for your life right now. Because only you are responsible for the outcome. The call in all of this, you know, I could easily give you a list of 10 things to do and not to do and so on, but that's not... That's not the point. The point is this. We are the Lord's. We are a kingdom and priests unto our God. Therefore, we orient our whole life toward the Lord. You keep Jesus in the front. Jesus is the focus. Remember, it's all about Jesus. It's for Jesus' glory. It's Jesus who inaugurated the kingdom. It's Jesus who is the king. You keep Jesus at the center. Make Jesus the the motivator. Seek to honor Jesus in every decision that you make. Make it about Jesus, not about you, not about your preferences. Make it about Jesus. Make it all about Jesus focus on Jesus. Your work is about Jesus. Your home is about Jesus. Your family is about Jesus. Raising children is about Jesus. The way you interact with your spouse is about Jesus. The way you interact with your friendships are about Jesus. You want to demonstrate Jesus and show Jesus and be Jesus and see Jesus every single moment. And as you orient yourself in that direction, you will naturally become the person that Jesus holds up, gives you that stability. You will will relish the fact that you belong to Jesus and you can live the adventure of your life to the fullest in that knowledge that Jesus who has bought you is Jesus who is never going to let you go. And you can know as that orientation to Jesus that when you stand before God, you can say as you give an account for your life, it's been all about Jesus. And the heavens will rejoice. Rejoice and your destiny will unfold to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we know it's all about you. It's about your glory. It's about your mercy. It's about your grace. And I thank you for making us a kingdom. And I thank you for making us priests unto God. And I thank you for drawing us together in this place at this time. And I thank you for the revelation of yourself to us. Jesus, reveal yourself to us. Reveal yourself to us as we worship you in these closing songs. Reveal yourself to us. And let the orientation of our lives be to you for your glory and praise. Amen.